Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sanders Facts. Hello, everybody. Welcome into the latest edition of the Xander's Facts podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander, and thank you all for pressing the button that sent this podcast straight into your ears. It is episode 90 of the Xander's Facts podcast here on Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. Thank you all so much for listening. And let me tell you all, you will be very pleased for listening to this podcast this week because we've got a big topic to cover this week. We are talking about money. And I know that everybody loves money, but more specifically, we're talking about money in politics, which I know everybody loves because yay politics. But the title of this episode is the DC Cash Cab. And if you've ever seen the show Cash Cab, which was that show that came on in the middle of the day, back in the day when I stayed home from school and watched it, and the guy was driving around the taxi in New York, and he was asking the questions and they came in and the lights went up on the roof of the, I don't know. What are you talking about? But... If you were thinking I was going to talk about the show, I am not, sadly, even though it is a tremendous show, it should come back. But we're talking about the DC cash cap because there's a lot of money in DC that we're seemingly giving away. Well, not us. There are some people. And we're going to talk about it on this week's podcast. Campaign financing, donors, special interests, all the fun jargon that you all love. We're going to talk about campaign financing this week because it is actually pretty important to what is going on in this country in politics, which basically affects whatever's going on everywhere in this country. So we're going to talk about that in just a second here on the Zaders Facts Podcast. But before we get started, I just wanted to remind y'all that if you like the Zaders Facts Podcast, if you think you're going to like all the facts on this week's edition, remember to click the follow button on this podcast, download this episode, episode 90. I got to be frank with y'all. The only metric that I see for some reason is downloads. So you got to download the podcast like every day. You can download it one day and then the next day you can delete it and then the next day you can download it again. Like do all that stuff because that promotes the podcast. Spread the facts by downloading the podcast so you can rate and review the podcast too and check us out on all the social medias, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Xander's Facts, that's Xander with a Z. And most importantly, remember to tell all your friends. Spread the facts! Xander's Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast, about Xander's Weekend Facts, which, if you don't know, is our weekly newsletter that comes out every Sunday morning. It's got a recap of the top news stories and sports stories from the past week, plus a top story that I write about for a little bit, and an article that I read in the last week, which I want to share with y'all. So go check out that newsletter, sign up for it. It is free to sign up and read in this episode's description. Check it out. And you can also go to the Xander's Facts link tree, which has all the Xander's Facts links that you need, including for the Xander's Facts website, which includes the Xander's Facts shop. Get yourself a t-shirt, a sticker, a hoodie, pants, whatever. Xander's Facts. That's how you spread the facts. Xander's Facts shop at xandersfacts.com. So with all that out of the way, spreading the facts, let's get to our sole topic for this week. Here we go. Money. In politics, because there's a lot of it in politics, and it's not exactly our money that's in politics, because there's a sad reality that we should all probably face, and, well, mostly all of us, maybe not some of us, but it's that we don't have that much influence in our politics, unless 
That is, if you are an individual with a lot of money. And by a lot, I mean a whole lot of money. Because yes, we are talking about voting all the time. I always say how important it is because it gives us, the people, a voice in our democracy. And that's true. Voting is the biggest tool we have, the biggest voice we have in our democracy, which is great. But there are a few in this country who actually have a much larger voice. And it's not because they have more than one vote, but it's because they have much more money than the average American. And it turns out that having a lot of money can do wonders to advance whatever agenda you have. And that's true in many facets of life. And that includes politics. And y'all probably know about all that. But what about where all this money comes from? What all that money actually does? We all hear and talk about, oh, Washington is so corrupt. Why is it so corrupt? It's a question a lot of us have, and the answer is about to be revealed on this podcast, actually. So just hold on. So on this week's podcast, we're going to take a look at just how much money is in our politics, where it comes from, what it does, and eventually what we can do to get rid of it. Because that would be nice. So before I get started, by the way, I just wanted to let you all know that there was a previous episode of this podcast that was recorded back in July. Ugh. Episode 71 of the Zaders Facts podcast, The Rich Keep Getting Richer, which did pretty well back in the summer, I might say. But when you finish listening to this podcast, go check out that podcast if you haven't, because we talked about wealth inequality in the U.S., and a lot of it kind of relates to what we're about to talk about. So if you haven't listened to that episode or you need to go listen because you haven't listened in since last year, oh my gosh, 2022, then go check out that podcast. Because it also has a lot of facts and a lot of similar facts based on wealth and inequality, which we're going to talk about here on this podcast. But let's start off on this podcast with the question of how did our politics in the United States, but in a lot of places, but specifically we're talking about in the United States, get overrun with wealth? All this money. And when I say all this money, I'm talking about billions and billions of dollars. Billions with a B. Get that dough! And what we're talking about here is not what the federal government takes in from tax revenues and spends. That's a whole other thing, which we can talk about and we have on this podcast. But what we're talking about is what is spent on political campaigns by outside forces. What we're talking about is the money that is being spent that influences how much money the government spends and where it spends it. And most of this obviously has to do with Congress, but it could definitely apply to the other two branches of the federal government and state and local levels of government in some circumstances. But the biggest issue that we all see all the time, or we all complain about, is with Congress. And it all starts when a candidate declares that they're running for public office. And in order to have any chance of winning, if you run for any office, this is true for any level, local, state, federal, you have to get your name out there. And that takes something that we like to call moolah, money. Hello, I like money. Mr. Krabs loves him some money. What inspired you to build a second Krusty Krab right next door to the original? Money. And you need to make sure that the voters know who you are. And what you stand for, where you stand on the issues. You need to make flyers, campaign signs, online ads, television ads, maybe. All of these things to make sure that you are known. But not just to the voters, but also to the donors. Who can be voters, but 
not in all cases. And here's the first number I'm going to bring out for you. It costs an average of over $2 million to run a successful campaign for the U.S. House. So a campaign, a candidate's campaign, usually has to spend, on average, $2 million to win an election for the U.S. House. In the Senate, that average cost in the 2018 midterm elections was over $15 million. Fact nugget! And while a lot of candidates tend to use their own wealth in their campaigns, donors can obviously help. And obviously, sometimes, you can't use your own wealth because you don't really have any. You don't have $2 million. In fact, in 2018, Beto O'Rourke, the Democrat who lost the Texas Senate race in 2018, spent $79 million. And he lost. Now, of course, that's including money from donors who donate directly to the campaign. But even that number is still pretty crazy. And then, if you're actually trying to replace an incumbent, so if you're running against the person who already holds the seat, it can get even more pricey because that's what Beto experienced when he ran against Ted Cruz. In last year's congressional elections, we're talking 2022 now, 94.5% of the incumbents running in the House won. And that number really hasn't changed much in the last few decades. There is a thing called incumbency advantage, and it is real. That's why most presidents serve two terms, because after your first term, when you run for your second term, you usually win. That's usually what happened. There's been a couple of cases, well, there's been one case recently where that did not happen. You really need to royally screw up for that not to happen if you're running. Need some ice for that sick burn. But it's a big deal when an incumbent loses. Like, you remember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Democratic primary win was that, 2018, when she beat Joe Crowley, who was one of the top Democrats in the House. He was the chair of the House Democratic Caucus, and that was in a primary. That was a huge deal because Crowley had served in that seat in New York for two decades, and then he loses to someone that we had never heard of before. So incumbency advantage is a real deal. So add that on to the cost of trying to run a successful campaign. And even when you spend $79 million, it may still not work. But with this money, we're talking about actually contributing to the campaign of a political candidate. Because there are federal laws that limit how much money an individual or a PAC, which is a political action committee, can give to a political candidate. So last year, the maximum amount of money that you, an individual, could give to a candidate for federal office was $2,900. For multi-candidate PACs, political action committees, that number is $5,000. So you're probably thinking, well, I probably wouldn't spend $2,900 on a political campaign, nor could I, but that doesn't seem too bad. I mean, $2,900 can add up to a lot if a ton of people are donating, but not billions and billions of dollars, you know? So... That's not where the real issue lies. To find out where the real issue lies, we're going to go all the way back to the great year of 2009. How about that? 2009. Man, that was rough. 14 years ago, the inauguration of our first black president, Sandra, was just a wee youngling. And also in that year, the Supreme Court heard the case of Citizens United versus the Federal Election. Commission. Now, you've probably heard of Citizens United before. 
They're a conservative nonprofit organization that in 2008 were trying to promote and air a film that was critical of Hillary Clinton during the 2008 presidential primary elections. But because the film was considered electioneering communication and was within 30 days of a primary election, or in the case of that law, 60 days within a general election, the broadcasting the film would have violated the 2002 Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which was passed on a bipartisan basis through Congress and signed into law by President George W. Bush. That law, which is also known as the McCain-Feingold Act for Senators John McCain and Russ Feingold, who were on opposite sides of the aisle, dealt with soft money and campaign financing and issue advocacy ads like the Citizens United one, if you need an example. Citizens United, so, they sued the FEC, saying that the ban of all independent expenditures by corporations and unions was a violation of the First Amendment's protection of free speech. Then in the next year, 2010, the Supreme Court agreed with Citizens United on a 5-4 decision. The five conservatives voted with Citizens United. The four liberals dissented and sided in favor of the FEC. And so the majority of the court decided that no limit should be placed on corporate independent expenditures for elections. And because of this ruling, corporations and outside groups can spend unlimited amounts of money on campaign spending. They don't give that money to the candidate because that would be illegal since it would exceed the limits on giving to candidates. Instead, they spend it on their own. And at the time of the ruling, 2010, Republicans, like the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, praised the ruling. He said it would restore First Amendment rights, while Democrats, like then-President Barack Obama, decried the ruling because they said it gave special interests and lobbyists even more power. So now, instead of tens of millions or less that we talk about for candidate expenditures, we're talking about much, much more that goes into a political campaign. And so that leads us to one of our next questions. So what does all this outside money do, and where exactly does it go to? Well, the first election where we saw this happen, where the aftermath of the Citizens United ruling, where we were able to see its effects, was in the 2010 midterms. That was the year Republicans made massive gains to take control of the House on that Tea Party movement. The Citizens United ruling came on January 21st of that year, 2010, and by Election Day, nearly $300 million had been spent by outside groups, 40% of that coming from undisclosed sources, so we don't know where 40% of that came from. Oops! Which might be a problem. This money wasn't given directly to candidates, though. It was given to indirectly support candidates and causes. And that created what we now know today as super PACs. Remember those political action committees? Now they're supersized, so they're super PACs. So I'll give you an example of a super PAC in action. In 2016, you may remember a Republican presidential candidate by the name of Carly Fiorina, taking you back a ways. Who? The name of Carly's official campaign committee was Carly for President. That was the name of her campaign. But some of her supporters set up a super PAC by the name of Carly for America. 
You see the similarities? So Carly for America, which was the super PAC, was able to attend events which were held by the Fiorina campaign. They signed people up to an email list. They handed out stickers. They helped the campaign with setting up events, volunteering for no pay. I said that in air quotes. And Carly for America was able to raise millions of dollars and use that to indirectly help the Fiorina campaign without actually giving the money to the campaign directly. And obviously, Carly Fiorina didn't win the Republican primary in 2016, but this happens with every candidate. And it's not just a partisan problem, because super PACs live on both sides of the spectrum. Republican and Democratic supporters each set up super PACs that make millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to support their candidate. Indirectly. And because of the Citizens United ruling, that is all perfectly legal. That was dumb. Well, technically... Members of super PACs and campaigns cannot actually coordinate with each other. They cannot communicate on these campaigns, basically. That's illegal. But as you would imagine, the government agency that is in charge of regulating this, the Federal Election Commission, the FEC, has a hard time of it. And not just because it would be difficult to track coordination, especially if no paper trail was left. That'd be difficult seeing do these people communicate with these people? That's already difficult. But also because the FEC, spoiler alert, has basically been set up to fail. What do you say? And if you don't know what the FEC is, it's the Federal Election Commission, which is an independent regulatory agency, which was created in 1974 after amendments were added to the Federal Election Campaign Act. This came after the Watergate scandal, and there were serious financial abuses in the 1972 presidential election, and members of Congress on a bipartisan basis agreed that there needed to be a government agency that was regulating campaign finance laws, especially after they passed the Federal Election Campaign Act in 1971. But the commission is set up so that on all times, there are three Republicans and three Democrats. And when there is a tie vote, nothing happens. So you would imagine how much gets done over there at the FEC. Hint, it's not a lot. Do better. So even on top of all the indirect support that super PACs can give, there's probably instances where they have directly supported candidates too. And they've gotten away with it because of our great bureaucracy. How about that? So during election season, when you see a digital or television or even print ad, and it doesn't say it's endorsed by a certain candidate, then it's most likely coming from a super PAC. Like, during an election, everybody complains about all the ads. If you're watching TV, there's going to be an ad, and Donnie Boy's going to say, I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this ad, because it was approved by his campaign. His campaign spends on it. But there are also ads that promote what Trump wants to do, or him as a candidate, but... They're not approved by Donnie Boy. And so those ads are likely coming from a super PAC. And in the 2022 elections, which just happened a few months ago, there were 2,462 super PACs. And yeah, they do all need to be registered with the FEC. That's something the FEC makes sure they do keep an eye on, is registering these super PACs. In last year's elections, these super PACs raised. This is a big number I'm about to throw out at y'all. 
$1,502,151. That's how much they raised. They spent $1,353,113,454. That's a lot of numbers. And 61% of that money spent came from conservative super PACs. And a 2020 report from the nonprofit Public Citizen found that from 2010 to 2020, nearly $1.4 billion was given to super PACs by just 25 donors and their spouses. $1.4 billion from 2010 to 2020 was given by just 25 people and their spouses. That's insane. And in 2014, it was found in those elections that 94% of donors who gave $5,000 or more were white. When in the last census, which was 2020, but that's only six years, wouldn't be that big of a change, white people who were not Hispanic or Latino made up just 59% of the population in 2020. Gash facts. And so when we talk about those 25 donors, which we're talking about the richest of the rich, Take, for example, Sheldon and Miriam Adelson, the owners of the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, which is a casino company. Now, Sheldon passed away in 2021, but after the 2017 tax cuts passed by Republicans in the Congress, which gave the Adelsons a $700 million tax break, by the way, they then invested $113 million of that into the 2018 elections for Republicans, which was the record for a political contribution by a single household. But, Xander, I thought that that money was going to trickle down to the middle and lower classes. Well, turns out it didn't. I know. Shocker. We've talked about that before on this podcast, how they usually don't trickle down. And guess what? These donors were absolutely pushing Republicans to pass these tax cuts. There were donors who were threatening to withhold their support in future elections if they didn't. And it's really a never-ending cycle, or it has been up until now, because that tax cut in 2017 cut the federal corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. And that's how not just the Adelsons, but a lot of people who own these large corporations got big tax breaks. Not really for the people who don't make over half a million dollars a year. And we talked about that on episode 71 of the podcast, which you should go check out. Same as Bog. And that's about where the effective corporate tax rate stands. But hasn't always been that way. It was much higher back in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. It was hanging around 50, 40%. And actually, back in those days... 40s and 50s, the corporate income tax as a share of our GDP was up around 4, 5, 6 percent. And in 2009, it was just 1 percent. It's a fact. And that was really started by the massive corporate tax cuts that happened in the 80s, which happened to be when a certain Republican was president. But the fact is, The donors for Republicans were still asking for it. The lobbyists, 
you know, we weren't dealing with all the money from Citizens United back in the 80s, but there was still some influence for these politicians on Capitol Hill. Now, it's just really all out in the open, and we can see how much money is being spent. This amount of money has never been spent before, but still, it's just staggering. So, you add that, that donors are pushing Republicans to pass these tax cuts because their donors get huge tax breaks from these tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy. You add all that on top of the lobbying that goes around on Capitol Hill and has forever, where politicians are influenced by big money-making lobbyists, those lobbyists make a lot of money, and the stock trading that politicians partake in, and the corruption as well, and it's added up to the most money we've ever seen in politics by far. And all that money means a lot of influence. And since it's not us, normal, everyday Americans, giving that money, that influence doesn't go to us. Because most politicians can just follow the money instead of listening to their constituents. But in most cases, because they either have a D or an R next to their name, they'll keep getting reelected. And fundraising for the next election begins the day after the last election ends. It doesn't matter if you're a House member and you got two-year cycles or a Senate member and you got six-year cycles. Always fundraising for the next election begins the day after the last election ends. If you say so. So the question of why are politicians corrupt and out of touch with their constituents, which many polls would suggest that the vast majority of Americans believe, both sides of the aisle, well, take what Citizens United has done as a direct example. It's always been that the wealthiest and lobbyists have major influences on these politicians, but now it's worse than it's ever been because we have billions with a B of dollars getting pumped in to our politics. So the last question I got is, what can we do to try and get money out of politics? Because it's not looking good, y'all. Our politicians are getting major indirect support from the wealthiest people in the country and in turn are doing their bidding in Congress. And if you need any more evidence of this, just look at insulin. There was a price cap for insulin that passed Congress last year for $35. So the out-of-pocket cost for insulin would be capped at $35 if you were on Medicare. But Republicans blocked the part where that would affect everyone, not just if you're on Medicare. Why would they do that, though? Because they've got big pharma who does not want that to happen. They want their profits to continue to grow, and capping the cost of insulin will not allow their profits to continue to grow. And that relates to any other pharmaceutical drug, too, that's out there. And the pharmaceutical companies are charging these crazy rates because they can. Because Congress isn't going to do anything about it because the pharmaceutical companies are indirectly paying these candidates and saying, listen, if you want to continue to get my money, indirectly, of course, my support, then don't vote for price reductions or price caps for pharmaceutical drugs. It's all true! That's what's basically happening. 
with that and other things. And it probably seems like we can never fix this, but there are solutions. And they've even been proposed in Congress. There was a big bill two years ago now. Take, for instance, the For the People Act. We talked about the For the People Act back in the day on this podcast, in the early days of this podcast. Episode 19 of this podcast from June 2021. Actually, you should go check that out because I'm going to ramble for a second. But I looked back on that podcast and I absolutely love that podcast episode because we took a look. I actually read that bill and I summarized it and I marked out all the sections that are important stuff and all that. Like I went through that bill and I broke it down for all y'all on that podcast. And also, that was the podcast. I think it's called The Kids Are All Right where we talked about the U.S. men's national team and their Nations League win over Mexico, which I like to credit as the game that really got me into soccer, which we now talk about on the top of this podcast. So that's why I absolutely love episode 19 of the podcast. So if you haven't checked it out, you should, because it is absolutely one of my favorites that we've done out of 90 episodes now. How about that? So go listen to that. Judge Xander. That bill, the For the People Act, was most known for voting rights, but it also included something called the Disclose Act. Disclose is actually, stands for something. It stands for democracy is strengthened by casting light on spending in elections. That bill would require dark money groups, ones where we don't know where that money's coming from, to disclose any contribution over $10,000. And it, along with the For the People Act, was blocked by Senate Republicans. Now, ever since 2010 and the Citizens United ruling, that bill has been introduced in Congress, that Disclose Act, and it has not passed since 2010, 13 years now. We've been trying to pass it, and it has not happened because it's not getting Republican support. And without placing limits, on outside group contributions or disclosing these donors, we probably aren't going to be able to pass things in Congress like the For the People Act or something like increasing the minimum wage or fighting climate change or revamping health care, which I think everybody thinks needs to happen, or fighting to stop mass shootings or lowering prescription drug costs like we just said, or actually getting necessary election reforms passed for the People Act, or really anything noteworthy that would significantly improve our society. Instead, we'll get more things like tax breaks for the wealthy, loosening regulations, like what happened in the Citizens United case. Because it's pretty insane that from March 18th of 2020, you may remember that time, that was not a good time, to June 17th of 2020, the total net worth of U.S. billionaires rose from 2.9 trillion to 3.5 trillion in 3 months. This is a fact. At the height of the pandemic, over 40 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits and the net worth of billionaires rose by 600 billion dollars. And a lot of that is because in the CARES Act that was passed included tax breaks, more of them. So there you go. And also, closing loopholes for corporate donations, limiting outside spendings, and making sure that we actually know who is spending what and where 
are reforms that probably need to be passed. And probably banning Congress members from trading stocks and sitting on corporate boards would lessen the influence that the wealthiest have on them, too. This is something that both parties are guilty of because Nancy Pelosi is an individual who does not want stock trading to be banned by congressional members. These are issues that we have with members from both sides of the aisle. There's a senator who's now an independent named Kirsten Sinema. You know, when she got in Congress 2018, she was worth a lot less than she is now. And her views have changed a lot from then to now. I saw one thing that she was talking about randomly. I don't know what it was, but she called Kevin McCarthy a dear friend. Now, I'm all for bipartisanship, but really, you know, that's an individual who has made a lot of money in Congress, and his views have changed. She was a very progressive Arizona state legislature, and now she's an independent because she doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster to do all these progressive Democratic things. And there really aren't many reasons why she would completely flip-flop on all these positions in a couple years, except for, I don't know, maybe... I like money! The promise of wealth. So, there you go. And until we get those things, all these reforms, the situation we're in is probably just going to get worse and worse. Things need to happen. Things need to change. Or unless we're just going to keep going in this never-ending cycle of tax breaks and politicians gaining money rapidly overnight, their net worths ballooning, and not because of us, but because of those at the top, who might not want things that we do. They might want things that give them more power and wealth, and we might not want that because we might not want monopolies, we might want competition, we might want better wages, better working conditions. And as in we, I'm talking about the vast majority of people in this country and around the world. But we'll see. Things have got to change because there's a lot of money in our politics and it is not a good thing. Spitting the truth. That's basically the facts on money and politics and campaign financing and what the Citizens United case actually did, what it means, and what potential solutions we have to. Get out of this. We're not going to do it in this Congress. Republicans of the House aren't going to pass anything. So it might take a bit, but it's got to happen or else we're just going to keep going down this slide into not so great things for the United States of America. So those are the facts that I've got this week. And that is the podcast this week, episode 90 of the Xander's Facts podcast. We haven't done a podcast this, I'll say, brief in a while. but. Just the one topic today, and there's still a lot of facts on this week's edition, episode 90. But thank you all for listening to the facts this week. And remember that if you liked all the facts on this week's edition of the Xander's Facts podcast, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 90, download it, please. And you can delete it the next day if you don't have storage or download it again or do whatever. Rate and review the podcast. Go on all our socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I've got a new thing I'm doing on TikTok and Instagram Reels and YouTube Shorts and all that. The five-second fact, which is actually not five seconds, but we're starting to get that up on TikTok and Instagram and all that stuff. So go check that out. It's pretty cool. At Xander's Facts. That's Xander with the Z. And most importantly, remember to tell all your friends. Spread the facts. Xander's Facts Podcast. 
Tell all your friends about the podcast, about the newsletter, Xander's Weekend Facts. You can check out Xander's Facts on YouTube. We have a an entire YouTube page that has all our new episodes. This episode is going on YouTube. It's got a nice background. It's got QR codes that I put on there so you can scan all the Xander's Facts links. Very easy from your phone if you're watching on your iPad or your computer or your TV or whatever. Check out Xander's Facts on YouTube. Make sure to subscribe. And check out the Xander's Facts link tree, because it's got all the Xander's Facts links that you need, including those that I just mentioned, and for the Xander's Facts website, which includes the Xander's Facts shop. Get your fax swag at xandersfacts.com. That is it for episode 90 of the Xander's Facts podcast. Episode 91 is coming up next week, and I actually have planned out what we are doing for episode 91. How about that? So you're going to want to listen up because next week we are staying with a little economic topic. And I've got one question that I'm going to answer next week. What exactly makes a recession? We've been talking about inflation. Inflation is going down. Gas prices have been going down in the United States for a little bit now. But interest rates are rising pretty rapidly. And there are some that believe that this could ultimately, in this new year, 2023, cause a recession. So what exactly is a recession? What are the criteria that we have to define a recession as such? Like, how are we going to know when we're in one? So we're going to talk about that next week, because you all probably have the same questions I do. So I'm going to answer those questions with some facts next week. And... Because I have been watching the NFL playoffs, I must admit, football, the NFL conference championships are in a week and a half. The divisional round is this weekend, and if you don't know, I'm posting my picks, as I've done every week throughout the football season, on the Xander's Facts Instagram page and Xander's Facts SC on Instagram, Sporting Club, which you should all go check out, go follow, go like. I'm going to post those in a couple days on the Xander's Facts Instagram page, my picks for this weekend's games. Go check that out. But next week, I'm going to be previewing the conference championship games in the NFL. And then, of course, we'll have our Super Bowl preview in a couple weeks on the podcast because we're getting down to the final weeks of the football season. And even I have to talk about that this year. So we're going to talk about football and the economy, recession. What is it? What isn't it? We'll talk about that all next week on episode 91 of the Xander's Facts Podcast. But that is it. That is a wrap on episode 90 of the Xander's Facts Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And the Xander's Facts Podcast rolls on with episode 91 next week. Z-A-N-D-E-R-S-F-A-C-T-S dot com.